today, I have Dr. Nina Salander. Uh, Dr. Salander, thank you for joining us today. Um, and if you don't mind, just kind of start off by maybe just generally introducing yourself and um, what it is that you do now. And, and yeah, we'll take it from there. Sure, sure. Well, in a nutshell, um, I grew up overseas, primarily in Europe, and um, moved back to the United States during high school, attended Gordon College, uh, which is a small Christian liberal arts college north of Boston, um, and then decided to pursue my doctoral degree in psychology at Regent, obviously. Uh -huh. um, I graduated in 2017, so I, I think I still count as early career. <laughs> um, and after grad, well, so I, after wrapping up coursework and um, doing more clinical time, I completed my doctoral internship at um, one of the VAs in upstate New York. Okay. And then decided to pursue a residency in Jacksonville, Florida, which was at a level one trauma uh, center in trauma surgery. Um, and that was sort of, it felt like a little bit of a left hand turn in terms of that being very um, unlike any of my other clinical experiences <sighs> and um, ended up staying in Jacksonville and I work now as a rehab psychologist, not substance abuse kind of rehab treatment, but rehab in terms of like physical and cognitive changes and disabilities. So um, I work at Brooks Rehab, which is a big rehab system in North Florida. And I work in the hospital primarily where I see a lot of patients who've had spinal cord injuries, um, strokes, brain injuries, um, or like other medically complex problems, um, cancer, amputations. Um, and usually people are kind of in the midst of fairly involved like medical illness and problems. And my job is kind of to function as a part of a multidisciplinary team by um, like targeting a lot of the obstacles that can come up to for patients really maximizing their rehab experience, whether it's pain, fatigue, uh, depressed mood, anxiety, like and in very practical ways. So mm. like maybe a patient's afraid of falling during therapy sessions. Um, and so I come alongside of the physical therapist and we actively treat it in real time. Oh wow! Um, and so it's it's really dynamic. Every day is very different. Mm. Um, I do a little bit of outpatient therapy as well, and um, pre-surgical evaluations when they come up. Huh? What does a pre-surgical evaluation look like? Um, so it, it can be for a number of different procedures. Um, I've done a couple for like elective amputations. For instance, if someone's had um, a serious injury or a condition that isn't, is causing a lot of pain and dysfunction, and they think like, based on the options that their physician's giving them, that actually an amputation is maybe a, a viable mm. um, path to consider, they will refer someone to be evaluated from a psychological standpoint ahead of time. 
It can be um, spinal cord stimulator evaluations too, um, which is where a device is implanted and sort of interrupts pain signals um, or a pain pump, for instance, which delivers pain medication directly into the spinal cord. Um, and essentially the purpose of the evaluation is to identify any uh, psychological risk factors and protective factors and to provide recommendations, for instance, maybe um, boosting one's social support would be helpful or um, completing a course of CBT for chronic pain um, prior and during and after the procedure um, mm. and also providing more specific recommendations to the surgeon and the healthcare team about like how to communicate information, things to look out for, um, maybe indicating sort of the level of risk in terms of misusing opiates mm. and things like that. Wow, that's really yeah. interesting. I didn't yeah. I never even considered that <laughs> as part of psychology. And yeah. And that's that says a lot about That says because we've we've all had so many experiences where we go to a hospital, a facility, at the dentist, mm -hmm. wherever it might be, and we're just kind of rushed through there. And then, and it says mm -hmm. it says a lot about the the people who are referring them for an evaluation before just you know amputating them, and and they want things that actually right, go smooth. Right. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's really nice too to see that there are a lot of physicians in the area who realize like this is not only like maybe. For my own, you know, liability standpoint uh -huh. to sort of protect myself and make sure that I'm, you know, um, considering all factors before proceeding with this treatment plan. Uh -huh. But it's also in the patient's best interest by sort of optimizing the success of the procedure. Mm. Um, and so it's it's nice to see like more referrals coming from the same providers who I think find the reports helpful and yeah. they're like, okay, I'm going to continue doing this. <laughs> yeah. Um, we get a lot of work comp cases too. So essentially oh. people who get injured while they're on the job hmm. and that tends to be a little bit more um, of a complicated type of situation. Um, and because there's this third party involvement when it comes oh. to, covering the costs of services and sort of establishing um, like necessity and essentially they, the work comp um, team sort of becomes the client as well. And sometimes they mandate certain things or restrict access for certain services. I imagine that can be frustrating in some cases. Yeah, it definitely adds another layer. <laughs> <laughs> um, mm -hmm. When you, when you, when you mentioned, doing rehab in that way, I, especially for someone who might have to go through an uh, amputation, it made me think of, I remember a study saying that, or suggesting that uh, people who lost a limb, like arm or a leg, they were, they were sad or like they, their mood was lowered for maybe six months to a year, but then by the year mark or the three year, mark, I don't remember the exact timeline, but mm -hmm. they were back to baseline and living just as happy as they were before the, they lost the limb. And I was wondering, I thought, no, like that type of psychoeducation might be helpful. I don't know if you guys ever do something like that. Yeah. 
Um, sometimes I kind of describe that to some patients that I work with, but it's, it really kind of depends. And I've yeah. noticed from my own experience in the hospital that there's usually two types of patients mm. um, undergoing an amputation or have had recently. And one category is because of like a traumatic injury or accident where, you know, there was a loss of circulation and mm. the tissue is damaged and not healing, essentially dying. Mm. Um, and it's always kind of interesting to see that necrotizing tissue, essentially like the flesh is turning black and shriveling. Oh. And um, <laughs> I once worked with a woman who's had that in her fingers and her fingertip was like, starting to come off oh. and it was it was quite something but oh. um anyway um it could be because of a fall or a car accident or there's been a couple patients i've seen who've been um battling cancer and have had um, metastases to the bone and maybe the bone starts to crumble or mm. come apart and so amputation is the next step and often for patients like that there's especially the traumatic injuries, there's not a lot of advance notice or time to prepare. Uh, like sometimes uh, you, you've you lost consciousness in an accident and you wake up in acute care and your limb is gone. Hmm. Um, and that is very traumatic and I think maybe more difficult for patients. Hmm. Uh -huh. And then there are other patients who maybe had an injury that has caused a lot of pain and dysfunction over the course of years, maybe. Mm. And they're not able to engage in the activities that they want to, like they used to. Mm. And so actually like the amputation becomes maybe both a, like medically indicated, but mm. also a relief because it's easier just to not have that part of your body and then mm. go through that healing process, have a lot less pain eventually, uh -huh. and use a prosthetic, use, learn how to use it effectively, and then, you know, like be out there and doing things. Yeah. And that group of patients are like, yeah, I'm so much happier after. <laughs> and you're like, well, great. Because <laughs> it's obviously a dramatic change, but clearly like things were so bad beforehand that this mm. is a positive change mm -hmm. that's so, really interesting for yeah. the first group do you uh would that be your job to kind of when they wake up and they're they've maybe lost a limb then you help them with the recovery process and kind of the therapy yes through that? Yeah. um in the hospital here um psychology is consulted routinely for any patient who's had an amputation recently um oh. just to check um, because sometimes problems can crop up along the way during rehab, um, mm. maybe like pain management challenges um, or like unexpected adjustment difficulties when getting up with rehab and, you know, tolerating um, the, the change in mobility because mm. typically it's someone who's had a below the knee or above the knee amputation. We do see bilateral amputees as well. Um, but so sometimes I go by and people are fine and there's not much follow-up. Others are really struggling to cope with the changes. Mm. But one thing that sometimes I'll follow up with patients in either category is um, 
like behavioral health related factors that might have contributed to the need for an amputation in the first place. And a common one could be um, like poor management of diabetes. Hmm. Um, Because when someone has diabetes, there's a greater likelihood of sort of developing sores or abrasions or cuts on the bottom of their feet. And if they're not Mm. like routinely checking that, that can result in a very quick moving infection that can be very dangerous or um, for other patients, it'll be like a peripheral vascular disease or things like that. So and sometimes I'll be checking too, like if someone's a smoker, you know, I need to provide some education that's probably not in your best interest to keep smoking because your cardiovascular health is critical for healing of your, your residual limb at this point. Mm. Um, And unfortunately some patients will um, have to have like a revised amputation um, because if the healing isn't good, they may have to go in and do what's called a debridement, which is removing more dead tissue or have Mm. to bring it up further and they really want to preserve um the joint as much as possible because that is easier when using a prosthetic man that would be terrible to have to go back go through it all over yes and Um, that is very discouraging for a lot of people yeah i bet the um you mentioned you work with like spinal cord injuries and things like that where we're in um, our biological bases class right now. Uh-huh. And they, so he's talking about neurological disorders. And, uh, and I asked about what rehab might look for someone that has had like a stroke. And do you also, like, let's say, do you also work with kind of neurological disorders and rehab for that? Or is it mostly kind of physical injuries and That's a good question. So my department is comprised of both rehab and neuropsychology. And so um, we sort of pick up our cases like in keeping more with our areas of expertise or our competency. And so I may see some stroke patients who are maybe having milder cognitive impairments Uh um, and can provide some sort of cursory education about um, about some of their post-stroke deficits um, and stroke prevention and maybe the utility of doing a neuropsychological evaluation after they discharge from the hospital. Uh-huh. Um, but for patients who are more cognitively impaired and maybe not only expressively aphasic, but also receptively aphasic and maybe having like behavioral issues or um, kind of are more complex and kind of leave those for the neuropsychologists on our team to pick up because they can kind of better um, guide their care and inform uh, the team on different things that might be helpful for them to know when working with this person and providing a little bit more specific education for families as well. Hmm. Okay. You mentioned that you, before, before Florida, uh, I think, no, you mentioned the surgery trauma or trauma surgery. Trauma sur- mm-hmm. Can you explain that? I've never heard of that either. Yeah. 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 Um, so I, there's different tiers of trauma surgery um, or sorry, level 
of trauma centers in the country. Uh-huh. So um, I think there's like levels one, two, and maybe three um, in terms of the severity of injuries and um, conditions that are received at a given facility. And some of that has to do with um, their accreditation standards, I think, mm-hmm. whether it's a teaching hospital or not. And so here in Jacksonville, we have a level one trauma hospital, which is a University of Florida Health. Um, and they receive kind of the most severe injuries. So they have a catchment area in from like up through South Georgia, out towards the panhandle of Florida, and maybe down towards uh, Daytona area, which is middle of the coast. Oh. Um, and, um, the role of the psychology program there is to sort of evaluate and serve both patients and their families, um, when they're falling into certain categories. So certain types of brain injuries, spinal cord injuries, loss of function, Um, For example, vision or element of mobility or um, um, uh, like traumatic amputation as well, um, or like other types of situations, like whether they were a victim of assault or um, um, experiencing other kind of like noteworthy types of situations. Um, I the types of cases we saw were pretty intense. So um, I would see patients sometimes down in the trauma bay when they would come off of the ambulance. Mm. Um, And we would be consulted if, for instance, someone was in a car accident, but someone else died in the accident, um, Mm. providing that kind of acute um, counseling and assessment or following a suicide attempt. So Mm. here in Jacksonville, for instance, there are seven large bridges um, Uh and seven bridges is one of those names you'll see like identifying certain businesses or places in the city. But like, I can tell you, like I've worked with some people who've jumped off these bridges Mm. and suicide attempts. And so I would see them and evaluate them during their stay. Mm. Um, And the work there was um, a little bit multidisciplinary as well, but in a different sort of way. So sometimes working more with the chaplains um, or with palliative care. Um, So sometimes like we'd be very involved if uh, a patient was maybe not expected to survive and working with families um, and kind of guiding that process. And that would, be really helpful and beneficial. It was also very emotionally taxing. Yeah, I imagine. Yeah. Yeah. What was um what was kind of the transition from the VA to a setting like that? And and then maybe it wasn't all of a sudden, but in my mind, and like I've 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 mainly just um had, you know, I, I worked in the PSC, the Psychological Services Center here at Regent, and Mm -hmm. then uh, now I'm at a private practice in the community. Mm -hmm. And then thinking of going from kind of the normal therapy setting to like Mm -hmm. someone's coming out of an ambulance and I'm (laughs) supposed to evaluate. And uh, yeah, I don't know. What was that like for you? Like the transition (laughs) or the, did it build up to that? Like, yeah, well, so I would say 
like working in the VA, that's probably easier for most trainees mm. to visualize like, okay, I'm kind of using these broad-based clinical skills, uh-huh. but now it's in this setting with veterans. Uh-huh. Um, and you can kind of modify it according to those commonly presenting problems like PTSD and mm. um, maybe different types of anxiety, depression, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like in the VA, it was outpatient. It was kind of more similar to a private practice model. Yeah. Um, and then uh, I, during my internship year, I think it might've even been before that, you know, when you are on different listservs, you see uh, like advertisements for different positions. And I saw the one here in Jacksonville. I'm like, <laughs> wow, that sounds really interesting. <laughs> And even though I'm not ready to apply yet, I'm going to hold on to this because obviously like they'll have another position the next year. Uh And I emailed pretty early and they, I think it was right around the time where they are starting to, they were starting to standardize that process. So it wasn't quite like applying for internship. It was a little bit more informal. Mm. Um, So you don't have to go through a matching process or at least then you didn't have to. Um, and, um, they were like, well, yeah, like, we'll interview you. And I did it by zoom. I'm like, this is going to be really different. I don't have like a lot of direct experience. Mm. Um, but if you'll take me, I'd love to be there. And I just thought it would be really, uh, an interesting change of pace. And I uh-huh. thought, well, maybe this will be sort of, um, an open door into a different direction that I wasn't planning for, but it sounds exciting. Mm. Um, and it was, and I would say like the first word I would use to describe it is surreal. <laughs> okay. Um, it's, there were many days where I would think like, I feel like I'm in a movie right now. Like, oh. I can't believe this is happening or I can't believe like um, I'm seeing these things. Mm. Like even one example would be like, um, having been in the trauma bay, essentially like the place where they're taking trauma patients off the ambulance, uh-huh. kind of like what you'd expect of an emergency room, but specifically for trauma mm. and um, being shown on the screen, uh, like a scan, I think it was an MRI of a teenager who'd been in an accident that essentially resulted in like an internal decapitation injury, like mm. where his spinal cord was severed at the base of his skull. And wow. just like, it gives me chills even kind of thinking about yeah. it, but like there's the scan right there and there's the patient mm. and also the family's just down the hallway and uh-huh. you're going to go in with the doctor and sit with them while they learn the news. Yeah. And it's just, it's really like, just surreal. And at the end of the day, you're just sort of like processing everything. Mm. Um, actually, for anyone who's interested, I did write a blog article just sort of processing my experiences about kind of what that was like. Okay. And I can share that with anyone who's interested. Yeah, if you don't mind, if you, um, if you send it to me, I can just put it in the link when I upload this video. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, that's fair. Okay, man. And how long were you there just for, for the year? A year. Yeah. And is it, is it like, uh, kind of like that was a great experience, but this isn't what I want to do for the rest of my life. So I'm going <laughs> to move to this 
rehab type of facility. Yeah, yeah. It was, well, it was kind of a natural segue to Brooks Rehab because a lot of the patients that we would discharge from uh-huh. the hospital would go for rehab mm. at Brooks. Uh-huh. And so it was sort of a happier stepping stone to see like, okay, like you've made it through yeah. the really critical part where your health is unstable or um, it there, it was just really intense to mm. now you're in this environment where everything is about your recovery and about mm. getting stronger, about becoming more independent. Yeah. Um, so it's inherently more optimistic, I think. Yeah. Um, and that was kind of nice. Um, Would I go back to working in that environment? I sort of have a little bit because next to Brooks is a level two trauma center and I consult over there. So I have um, credentialing over there and I go over there um, periodically to see some of their patients that they have particular concerns about. So I still get some of that exposure there. Hmm. And is this... um... Is this kind of uh, agency setting type of work with with trauma and with rehab? Is this what you you feel geared to? Like, is this what you plan on doing for the next, I don't know, decade or few years? <laughs> <laughs> um, I would probably always gravitate towards these inpatient roles, but mm. I think just in general, um, sort of health and medical psychology are okay. what I'm enjoying the most. Yeah. Um, when I think about like positions that involve a more typical sort of patient population um, in a like private practice setting that's just not appealing to me anymore <laughs> at all <laughs> yeah and I have to ask so because me being in school it's like well what do I want to do once I graduate and, mm-hmm. and especially I didn't realize that there are so many different opportunities or possibilities yeah like, yeah and so that's one of this the was not on my horizon at all. Okay, yeah. What, <laughs> when I was in grad school. <laughs> when you were in grad school, kind of where did you see yourself heading? Jeez, oh, um, I I don't know. I was probably thinking like maybe I'd like to work with the military population, maybe uh-huh. doing trauma treatment. Um, at the time, I anticipated that my husband was going to be having a career. in the military and so I would need to be able to travel with him and uh, working with the military would have made that more doable Uh Um, but that didn't end up like unfolding that way so um, I don't think I had very clearly formulated plans to be honest Mm -hmm. Um, I knew there were some things I didn't want to do like working in a psychiatric hospital even though I did a little bit of that at Virginia Beach Psychiatric. I I enjoyed it, but that wasn't kind of what I could see myself doing Um, long-term. And I knew I didn't really want to work maybe in a university counseling clinic. I didn't want to do work with kids. Uh Um, I see like occasional adolescents, but that's the youngest and it's unusual for that. Mm. 